Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, what makes the British Medical Association tick with their chief executive, Tom Grinier? Mel Sims is back with her thought for the week on COP26, and that's it, Mahmood as the Radical Roundup. Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and take a listen to this. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother well, Yes, that's Luke Roderick some... with his one-minute union rap We'll be hearing more from Luke later on in the show And what a show we have lined up for you Our special guest is the British Medical Association's Chief Executive, Tom Grinier This is an organisation with 150,000 members Overall assets of over 130 million quid but it's dealing with chronic underinvestment in the health service, a pandemic of unrivaled, unprecedented proportions, and a generally hostile environment. What makes the BMA tick? How fit is it for the future? You can find out by listening to Tom in just a few moments' time. It's great to welcome back Professor Melanie Sims, a professor of work and employment from Glasgow University, who will share with us her thought for the week, this time on What Else? COP26. And Bazit Mahmood from Left Foot Forward will be joining us with this week's Radical Roundup. Now, over the summer, Mel Sims was telling me how much she was looking forward to COP26 coming to her adopted hometown of Glasgow. She was a bit worried, she said, about the impact it might have on COVID rates in the city. But nevertheless, it's, it was a good thing and something she was very much looking forward to. So it's no surprise and absolutely appropriate that this week her thought for the week is on trade unions and the green climate change agenda. There's undoubtedly a pressing need to develop concrete plans to try and limit the worst effects of climate change. In an unfortunate turn of events, I've actually been quarantined for most of the conference and unable to attend most of the things that I'd booked. So I've mainly been observing things from the confines of my flat. And whilst I'm sad to have missed the main climate march, the internet broadcasts both of the main conference and many fringe events has allowed me to engage more broadly than I probably otherwise would have done. One of my key takeaways is that although the Labour movement is a lot more present at this conference than many climate change events, there's still a very long way to go to make the mainstream case for good work in a just transition. In an excellent speech to the main Congress, the General Secretary of the Scottish TUC, Ros Foyer, laid out that case for the just transition and the idea that it needs to be based on full employment and high quality unionised jobs. 
But to do that effectively, it's clear to me that unions need to be at the heart of the debates and policy making in this area. And whilst it was great to see a strong union presence at the conference, there's still a lot of work to do to embed the principles of just transition into trade union activities. And I think the challenge ahead for all trade unionists around the world is to make sure that collective bargaining and workplace change reflects the commitments of conferences such as COP so that we can be central to delivering a fair outcome for working people. Well, many thanks indeed, Mel. And let's hope you are out of isolation and backfiring on all cylinders just as soon as possible. Best wishes from all of us here on Union Dues. Now, if you want to listen to that speech that Mel referred to by STUC General Secretary Ros Foyer, you can find a link to that speech in the blog that accompanies this episode of Union Dues. You head over to the makesyouthink.com website under the blog section there. You will find an explainer, a sign poster, packed full of background and useful information, including, as I say, that link to Ros's contributions. And of course, Ros was our guest on an earlier episode of uh, Union Dues, which you can download uh, or stream from the podcast platform of your choice. Just one final thing to say, and that is obviously with the COP26 outputs not really being as anywhere as good as we'd hoped or uh, as we need as a planet, let alone a trade union movement, I will be catching up with some trade union climate activists later in this series of Union Dues to talk about where we go next in terms of the campaign for a just and sustainable transition. And now to our special guest for this episode, and I was delighted to welcome onto Union Dues, Tom Grinier, who is the Chief Executive of the British Medical Association. Now, the BMA occupies obviously a special pivotal role, you could say, in society at the moment grappling with underfunding of the, of the NHS, where, which is the main employer for the BMA's members, unsympathetic, you know, quite crass government comments about GPs not seeing enough people face to face, which caused great offence and has caused the GP committee of the BMA to run a consultative ballot that may be a precursor to industrial action. But what makes the BMA tick? And in particular, when you think about the BMA's strapline, which is looking after doctors so they can look after you, well, what does that mean in practice? What does that mean in day-to-day, everyday work for the BMA? That's what I started off by asking Tom. What does that strapline actually mean? Well, I, th- I think it's a really inspiring strapline. Um, and I think it really sums up the two sides of the BMA. The We Look After Doctors piece that's very much the trade union side of what we do. And then you've got the So They Can Look After You, which is the origins of the BMA. And indeed, the BMJ, which is um, the professional association side of the piece. And you know, my career has, over the last 25 years, has sort of spanned both big trade unions and big medical royal colleges. And I'm going to say, I think in some ways, when the BMA is at its best, it's the best of both. Right. Well, I mean, you've uh, preempted one of the questions I was going to ask you, which was comparing your past existence now some time ago, of course, as a national official with the PCS with Royal Colleges, Royal College of Anaesthetists first, now the Royal College, and now the uh, now the British Medical Association. A compare compare and contrast between those three organisations would be fascinating and probably take up much more time than we've got. But what would you say are the 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 main differences, particularly between say PCS and BMA? I think, I, th- I, think, I think it's a really good question. And I think if I think back to my time at PCS, so 25 years ago, I started working for the Civil and Public Services Association, which was the admin grade civil service union that a couple of years later was to be merged with what was then the PTC to form the PCS, the, uh, at the time, quarter of a million strong uh, civil service union. 
And I, th- I suppose I really cut my teeth there against the backdrop in 2004 of the Gershon Civil Service Job Cuts, which, for those that don't remember, it was 100,000 Civil Service Job Cuts that Gordon Brown, the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced around about 2004, I think. And we were a union with a quarter of a million civil service members. I think the civil service at the time was about half a million strong in totality. And obviously that was a major um, disruption to the entire sector. And uh, I was the newly appointed director of campaigns and communications. And uh, I think one of my mantras in whatever job I've been doing before and since is never waste a good crisis. One of the things that we did there was really use that direct threat to the profession as a clarion call to become involved in PCS and actually drove the membership density from uh, mid-50s to low 70%. And obviously 100,000 civil service job cuts was a major, um, major impact. But why am I spending so much time talking about that? The reason is that I think the best campaigns that we run around, ran around the job cuts were, yes, about protecting our members, but MPs, local newspapers weren't necessarily interested in that. What they were interested in was the service piece, the service in terms of what the civil servants were doing in their constituency, whether that was job centres, tax offices, driving examiners, all manner of those day-to-day operations, running the courts, et cetera, et cetera. And so... When we went out to campaign on that, I feel in some ways we were doing what sits at the heart of the BMA in terms of, yes, we had the trade union piece, but what we also were doing was advocating on behalf of the service users. And that brings me back to the BMA's mission statement of we look after you. In that case, it was the civil servants. In this case, it's doctors. But I think we're at our best when we can also advocate on the on behalf of people who are using our services. Yes, indeed. And, of course, the parallels are very, uh, very trenchant and appropriate, I think, because although um, although Rishi Sunak has not said that he has not said the government's going to cut funding for X thousand, X tens of thousands of, of doctors, Nevertheless, the government has just admitted it's not going to hit its target for, to recruit new GPs. It is a generally hostile, hostile environment. The mere fact that the General Practice Committee is considering uh, things that could end up in industrial action shows that there is a real challenge. And, and at the same time, the environment in which your members work has become increasingly hostile and fraught as well. well I, say, I, I, think, I think one of um, the key things that we've done um, during the COVID pandemic, and uh, I, I joined the BMA. Uh, so I, I left PCS in uh, 2010, went for a quiet life in health, first at the Royal College of Physicians for five years, and then four years as Chief Executive of the Royal College of Anaesthetists before then coming to the BMA in July 2019. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has shown has been the importance of getting that balance and the importance of both understanding what our members are saying, but equally important, understanding where patients are coming from. So one of the crucial voices to me throughout the pandemic has been that of our patient liaison group as well, and making sure we have a thriving patient liaison group that I think help keeps us grounded within the BMA. And what I would also contrast that with is 
throughout the pandemic, one of the things that we have done to stay in touch with our own members and the services that they're providing is to um, survey our members as regularly as possible. So again, we knew at the start of the pandemic that what our members were facing was, yes, there was an absolute shortfall in PPE. And that was a trade union issue, but it was also a patient safety issue. We had to make, we knew that was real and we knew it was real from our surveys. And we could almost pinpoint it down to regions and hospitals. We knew that people from ethnic minorities were being impacted more by the virus at the beginning or one of the, one if not the first organisation to really highlight that in the press. And I think through our surveys, through working with our patient committee, again, it's keeping the core trade union of we look after our members married with the um, so they can look after you piece because those are the you know the, the two sides of the BMA that as I've uh, spoken about were at our absolute best when they're working in harmony and, and indeed the point you raise about the patient liaison group I mean there are a number of unions who are in the, the service provision business if you like but I don't think there are many who have got such a sophisticated and established mechanism for engaging with the consumers of the services their members provide. I mean, I know TSA did a brilliant job on rail privatisation some years ago, but to have a, a, a firmly established body must be a huge advantage in terms of making sure the messaging and the stance in, in policy terms, but also the practical considerations, the PPE case you uh, you, you identified, it, it makes that particularly effective, I would think. 100%. And um, one of the things that I'm particularly proud that we managed to deliver during lockdown is a co-created strategy. We started that work on my arrival and um, actually one of the last face-to-face meetings we had in March 2020 was a one-day special meeting of BMA's council where we refined, um, we did a whole series of roadshows with the staff, um, both across the country and here in London. We'd done sessions with the patient liaison group and the chair of the patient liaison group was part of the steering group that was helping pull that strategy together. And so when we then took that to our elected members who we'd consulted throughout the the, um, principal executive body and as with any trade union, um, in the BMA's case, the council, it had that feeling of being co-created by three different parts, the staff, the patients and the members. And having that patient voice, I think, makes it the stronger or the stronger for the strategy. So the four principal pillars are around, yes, member engagement, yes, representing the profession, yes, influencing, and also running the BMA well. There is a strong strand within there of the professional activity piece combined with the negotiating, combined with the trade union. And I think overarching that i'll keep coming back to our mission statement of looking after doctors so they can look after you i mean that's a fascinating picture that that, that you portray and i i imagine colleagues in, in other unions who are thinking hang on a minute the service users the executive council and you've got a large executive council well, over 70 uh, places on that council i believe and the staff all working in harmony how does that work <laughs> i'd love to tell you it always, it always works in harmony but i think i think one of the things that um, was particularly important to me was trying to get some sort of strategic framework to help that harmony. So those four strategic pillars, and they were really tested by COVID, but having that mission statement, so going back to the PPE example, 
we really thought internally, because we were going to be the first major organisation to come out and say, look, this is a real issue. Yeah. And it is a trade union issue because, you know, fundamentally, a safe working environment is fundamental to Absolutely. any Absolutely. Uh, trade Absolutely. union. But equally, there was that bit, do we really want to, because there was a lot of um, supporting of the government's position and everything else, how do we want to do this in as safe a way as possible? And that's where coming back to our strategy and coming back to that mission statement of we look after doctors. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that we did at the start of the pandemic, which I'm hugely proud of, is uh, um, we have our uh, contact centre, first point of contact, which is a call centre um, that based up in Glasgow. And we took the decision to move that to 24-7. Such was the impact and that piece of we look after doctors and particularly, again, um, as well as our survey, where we knew PPE was an issue. People were contacting us. What do we do? We don't. We think we're about to run out. We're running out, et cetera, et cetera. And so almost over a weekend, moving that service to 24-7, it was already seven days a week. And am I going to say that we were getting as many calls at 3 o'clock in the morning as we were getting at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? No, of course we weren't. But I think just that safety net that we were able to provide in the teeth of something the likes that um, the health system had never seen yeah. before yeah. was yeah. Um, something I was really proud we were able to get off the ground as quickly as we did. Yeah, but I mean, you might not get many calls at three o'clock in the morning, but I bet I, I bet that the ones you get are probably weightier than many of the ones you get nine to five. Uh, that's 100%. People aren't ringing you at three in the morning because they want to update their membership address or... Um, they hadn't received a ballot paper or that sort of thing. People are ringing you at three in the morning because there's an issue. And so it, it, to me, it was about what could we do to give that safety net? It was it was just the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the strategic planning process, is it seems to me, to be fairly well embedded it, it, in BMA. And I think you've got a strategic plan at the moment that runs from 2020 to 2025. Was the preparation for the establishment of those four strategic goals, was that done on this kind of collaborative basis as well? We, we started with an absolutely blank sheet of paper. We looked at what our activity plans were. We looked at what we were doing. And it coalesced almost, if you like. And if I can you know, just talk a little bit more detail about each of the four. Mm, please do. It started with the, the member. So that first pillar of member engagement. It then built out to where they work, how they work. So that's the representative piece. And then it built out to society, which is influencing on behalf of BMA. And I think one of the things that's absolutely the ethos of what I've tried to do at the BMA in my time here is to, one of the things I inherited was a, a John Magpul chair of council had instigated a number of um, reviews. And one of those reviews was our membership services review. And to me, one of the cause of that varying calls within that membership services review was joining up what's happening to our members on the ground with what's happening at national negotiations and vice versa. And where we can, trying to sort out problems upstream for the benefit of all members, but then equally then looking after the individual member when something goes wrong as well. And one of the things that we've done now is restructure the BMA to um, deliver that strategy. So we brought in a new post of deputy chief executive that is now responsible for the member support area. So that's everything from our uh, largest single department, which is member relations, which 
looks after uh, members on the ground up and up and down the uh, the four nations right the way through to our national negotiations team and our legal team and the idea being that there's a much easier flow of information so we we become aware of issues on the ground and can feed them into national and local negotiations and vice versa all pa- backed up with high quality legal support the key to that of course is to make sure there are no broken links in the chain so so that the member the member at their place of work will have a local rep the local rep will have a regional rep the regional rep may have a, a national territorial rep and that will feed up to the national negotiations what additional support has the bma been able to provide for reps who are all i mean you know facility time as a concept presumably doesn't exist right. in this in this environment and so so how how has the BMA been able to support its, its reps during the pandemic particularly? So w- w- one of the posts that I identified that I thought we needed in our comms department was something there that's to support the activists. And so we've now got a defined post within our comms department, a brand new role, actually there, sending out information, joining that up, making that two-way flow of information work. I think other areas we've been able to uh, do that was relaunching the website um, we were on an epic relaunch of the bma's website and then covid happened and we just we kept the existing website and not thought let's throw the um, beta website out there because it was far more what we wanted it was geared up in a way that was far easier to find information specifically around covid and then the third area i would also say is putting our um uh, shoulders to the wheel in terms of our negotiations and one of the things that i instigated at the start of when it really did appear that um, things were uh, going to get way more difficult than say perhaps around swine flu bird flu and some of the other um, health scares that we've had was late february early march 2020 was to bring together really core participants from across the whole of the BMA. And um, I didn't realise when I set up a half-hour meeting every Monday, Wednesday and Friday for half an hour initially that, uh, well, 20 months on, we're still having them. Uh, Thankfully, no longer three days a week, but we had our meeting this morning for an hour, really bringing together senior elected leaders, so that's the chief officers, that's chairs of the major branches of practice, with key staff across the whole range of professional issues and negotiations and the on-the-ground member support. And if I look at this morning's phone call, we were discussing 20 months in, some absolutely crunch both trade union and professional activities issues. So um, this morning we were discussing mandatory vaccination and how we would support our members who didn't wish to take up mandatory vaccinations, what options of redeployment and other options are available. So both a trade union issue and also a professional activity issue, an ethical issue. And and a, and a user issue, because if, oh, if, if you take out 10 or 20% of the workforce at a stroke, there's a challenge for sure. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say it's not, as in, uh, certainly when it comes to doctors, it's not as many as 20%. I was thinking uh, care sector more than more yeah, health yeah. sector. No, 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 it's, it's, it's an issue across the whole health uh, care and social care sector. So discussing that, and I, th- I think that that all, almost the informal nature of those calls and at their height, so April, May, June 2020, at their height, we were um, meeting on a, for an hour on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and 
we started the week again on the Monday, just sort of playing catch up. So we were meeting Saturday and Sunday morning as well. I'm pleased to say not at eight thirty. It was a more civilized eleven-ish, uh, but we were meeting. We were meeting on a Saturday and Sunday because quite often we'd be hit by those issues that come in over the weekend that anybody who works in a hospital will be familiar with in terms of coping through the weekend became uh, became an issue as well. Yeah. Has there, has there in fact been a, a kind of membership or organising dividend from having to work at such pace and in such extreme circumstances? In, ter- in terms of membership, we took a hit in terms of our membership last year and uh, having a, initially, um, I think we did, we did two really progressive things um, with our membership to begin with. We gave free membership to all retired doctors who were returning to the register, which was something I felt, uh, we felt on the, at the BMA, that was something that we could do that was supporting the profession or supporting those who'd retired from the profession back into uh, clinical practice. And we also gave free membership to those students who were being uh, moved rapidly from their final year five uh, into medicine. Where we then suffered in 2020 was around recruitment so retention wasn't a problem. Recruitment was a problem, in particular, not amongst practicing members, but actually amongst students, uh, because quite simply, we weren't able to get out, do freshers' fairs and do the face-to-face stuff. I'm really pleased to say uh, membership has surged back this year. And um, if I look at the figures when I arrived in July uh, 2019 to the month that we've just closed out in October 2021, we're roughly 10,000 or so members mm. ahead of where we would have been. And I imagine if we'd not had the recruitment difficulties we'd had last, had last year, we'd be even further ahead than that. And one of the challenges that we're actively working on is how we go back and pick up those members that we may have missed for potential members that we may have missed for one reason or another. Well, Dan, if there are strong local networks, then it makes that task much easier. If we move away from the kind of servicing, organising kind of area and look at some of the, the kind of structural or constitutional um, issues that that that, that uh, impact upon the BMA, of course, there's the BMA and then there's the Royal College of GPs. What What's the relationship like? between the BMA and the Royal Colleges? Because not just the Royal College of GPs where you'll have members, it will be in other Royal Colleges as well. How, well what's the difference between them and, and where does the boundary lie? So as a, as a bit of a Royal College insider before I um, arrived at the BMA, I think the, um, the Royal Colleges are clearly there for their specific specialties to be the professional body for their specific specialties. So my immediate membership body that I was chief exec before becoming chief exec of the BMA was the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Secondary care seemed the largest specialty. And the Royal College of Anaesthetists, like all Royal Colleges, does a number of things that the BMA don't do. What's that? They set the curricula, they examine, they um, run events that are aimed and training that are aimed at that specialty, and they advocate for that specialty. The BMA, then, on the other hand, is the trade union, uh, the recognised trade union for all uh, medical specialties uh, across the four nations. Um, but it's also the professional body, then, for all doctors. So going back to um, the start of the pandemic, we were working on various pieces of guidance, ethical guidance, in partnership with the Royal Colleges. We do meet regularly with the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, the umbrella body for uh, Royal Colleges. And we will have individual links um, into and with a good number of the Royal Colleges as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very, uh, I mean, thanks. I bet that certainly 
a, a really clear split. You negotiate, they advocate, and that, yeah. you know there are clear things that go along with that. And then the other thing that, that I think is a popular misconception that that certainly a lot of our listeners will have, I think, is to think that the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, is the official mouthpiece of the BMA. Whereas, of course, it's not. It's not at all. No, and. Um... One of the highlights for me of lockdown they was listening to the weekly uh, media show on Radio 4 and hearing Fee Godley, the um, excellent editor of the BMJ, being interviewed on that and talking. She was asked exactly that same question by Amal Rajan about, well, you're owned by the BMA and uh, aren't you their mouthpiece? And she said, no, we have editorial independence. And the BMJ, and that in 2019, there was a debate at our um, annual conference, uh, our annual representative body about uh, BMJ editorial independence, and that was reaffirmed by quite a majority, a substantial majority, that that editorial independence is really important. As a a medical body, um, one of the things that's really important is peer review and editorial independence, and that then leads to impact factor. And uh, I mean, I I, I do believe that the BMJ is one of the jewels in the crown of BMA membership in that you do get the you do get the BMJ magazine as part of your um, uh, membership subscription, but within that, there is that editorial independence, and the BMJ enjoys the second highest impact factor in the country and the fourth or fifth uh, highest impact factor in the world as a as a journal, which um, is to be absolutely cherished and prized in my view. And um, one of the things that I might, my official title is Group Chief Executive. So when we think about the BMJ, we think about two things. We think about the BMJ as the journal in and of itself. But the BMJ is also an independent company from the BMA that runs about 70 titles, a lot of them um, in partnership with specialist societies and royal colleges and others. And um, as running that stable of journals, I think... um, gives a really powerful voice to a medical publisher. And as group chief executive, probably about 80 to 90% of my job is the BMA, but I also sit as um, an ex-physio director along with the BMA's treasurer and three appointed BMA uh, members on the BMJ board. But that's the board that runs the company. It's not the editorial board. Because again, that reinforces that independence in terms of the editorial. Yeah, and I think that must be very helpful, actually, because of course, when you're uh, a director, either an NED or an executive director of, of a company, you have a certain legal framework that you've got to comply yeah. with, <laughs> which which is you know irrespective of, of, of anything else. But I imagine, I mean, that, that those stats about the the impactful nature of the BMJ, that must be of, of particular comfort when say, BMA Council and BMJ editorial lines are at conflict with each other, which yeah. I imagine must happen from time to time. Oh, and it does, and it does. And I think, again, it's part of the rules of the game. Editorial independence comes also with editorial responsibility. And um, the BMJ will take a line. That is that is their line to take. So uh, we, we have been at odds in uh, various areas, and uh, we, we manage that within the BMA and the, uh, between the BMJ. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so, so the doomsday scenario of BMA Council voting to uh, to end its association with the BMJ is is hopefully hypothetical. Then. Uh, well, <laughs> it's, it's certainly not something I've heard suggested. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the other the other thing while, while we're on controversial and hot topics and and, and things that are distinctive uh, about the BMA, 
TUC affiliation. I mean, historically, BMA has not been affiliated to the TUC, not been interested in to the TUC. Do you sense that the mood is perhaps changing there? Or, or, or any, and if not, what are the arguments against it? I, th- I, mean, I just think at the moment it's it's something that's historically been the case. There's other large unions. I think the RCN is probably the largest union that I don't believe is affiliated to the TUC. It, it, it's you, you two are the biggest by a yeah. long way. <laughs> and I think I think to me it speaks historically of the the professional association nature where the BMA and the RCN originated from. It's a question I had when I arrived with my background, both on both sides of the fence, if you like, you know, as we discussed, civil service, trade mm. unionism and uh, uh, Royal College. To be honest, over the last couple of years, we've had plenty of other things to discuss as to whether we're affiliated to the TUC or not. That said, we do work with other unions in term, uh, the what we term in the health and the agenda for change unions. We work with Unison. We also work with the RCN uh, closely on a number of different topics. And um, we'll work at times with the TUC as well on uh, various uh, campaigns. So I, w- I wouldn't want anybody to think we're against the TUC or, you know, we're setting ourselves up in some other way. As I say, I think ourselves and the RCN with our shared history coming as professional bodies as well. I think that's why we've ended up where we've ended up. But it's, it, it, it is, it, it's not something that's a clarion call uh, or anything like that at the moment. To say that there have been other things to pay attention to is a kind of a bit of an understatement. I think that's probably uh, fair. <laughs> Tom, it's been, it's been a great discussion. Very, I mean, full of really, really interesting, uh, thought, thought-provoking insights. One, just one last thing, if I, if, if I may, and that is on your biography on the BMA website, it, you know, it's, it's only about 150 words, but some of them are taken up by, by the statement, Tom is a member of the GMB. Right, which uh, which I think is a very powerful thing for a chief executive to say. But nevertheless, when you have that that kind of vertical organising structure, whereby you're a member of the GMB, and the receptionist at, at, at the BMA's head office will also probably be a member of the, of the GMB. Hopefully, that they will be. Has that has that has that been a a particular problem, or has that actually been a strength? Do you think, uh, or probably a bit of both in equal measure? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I was a member of the GMB when I was at PCS as well, and. The GMB is the staff-recognised union. We also recognise the NUJ as well. I, I think it's very difficult to be uh, in a role like this and not practice what you preach. If we're out there recruiting members saying, join your union, I think it'd be very odd if I wasn't a member of the union that they recognise uh, union uh, who where I'm employed. Tom, thank you very much and best of luck to you in the BMA going forward. Thanks so much, Simon. I've enjoyed that. Well, I do hope that you enjoyed that. I thought that was a really meaty discussion. Lots, lots of issues to get our teeth into there. One thing, uh, obviously that we didn't talk about was the decision by the BMA's general practitioner committee to run a consultative ballot of their members, which is a precursor to possible industrial action. And that was triggered by really kind of crass, insensitive and inaccurate statements by government ministers about GPs workload and the percentage of patients that they saw face-to-face as opposed to had telephone or video consultations with, uh, and using that as a kind of indicator of of productivity or or efficiency, and then quickly followed by uh, uh, an election pledge uh, by the government not being uh, about increasing gp numbers and not being not being met being defaulted on so lots of unhappiness and lots of concern but the policy stuff that the bma does 
is under the remit of their council, their representative body, sort of the equivalent of the NE, of the NEC. And the chair of council, who's a, who's a really, really good guy called Chand Nagpal, really interesting guy, uh, would be the spokesperson on those sort of policy issues. But of course, you know, that raises all sorts of interesting questions in my mind about, you know, uh, member-led unions, officer-led unions. I've worked, I've worked for both in, in my time. And there, there's certain things that accompany each, each model that would make the subject of a whole, whole nother podcast, I think, probably. Then, of course, there's some of the other issues that we dealt with as well, such as service users in, in the way in which the, 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 the people who use the services of BMA members, i.e. patients, are embedded into their strategic planning process, I think is really interesting. Now, I know unions have, have embraced and taken on board service users, the people who use the services their members provide, you know, forever and day. I mean, TSA, the TSSA, for example, and the other rail unions are, are, are masterful at doing this, I think. Uh, the, the teaching unions, their members will sit down side by side with parents in school governing bodies, uh, for example. But I've never seen, I've never seen such a sort of structural commitment and a, a, a way of, of, of building in service users as I did with, with the BMA. But if you've seen a good example of this, if you think something that you're involved in is, is, you know, the gold standard on this, please do let us know. You can, you can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear from you, certainly. And then, of course, there was, there was some crazy kind of, kind of things, you know, about how the BMA owns the BMJ, but the BMJ is not the mouthpiece of the BMA. Uh, I mean, but you, you heard Tom's description of, of how that, how that works and what the, the advantages and the, the perhaps the not so great uh, features of that, that uh, arrangement are. And then, of course, you've got the, you know, the, you've got this confusion that exists quite widely, I think, between the BMA and the Royal College of General Practitioners. And I thought, again, Tom's clarification on that BMA negotiates, Royal College of GP advocates, I thought was, was, was a very good, clear definition. But if you want to find out any more about any of these issues, head over to the makesyouthink.com website, look in the blog section, you'll find the companion blog to this podcast. And in there, you will find links, signposting background, all the things you could need if you want to follow any of this up. Now, it's time for the Radical Roundup, and I'm delighted to introduce you to Bazit Mahmoud, who is the editor of Left Foot Forward, and he's joined us today to make his debut on Union Jews. So, Razit, what have you got for us? Over to you. Thank you so much, Simon. Now, we've got quite a few interesting stories in this week's Radical Roundup. We'll start off with Unite's dispute with Weetabix. Now, Unite says that it has irrefutable evidence that Weetabix is using fire and rehire tactics to attack the wages and conditions of Unite engineers, including the threat of sackings. Now, earlier this week, a senior Weetabix director made a public statement alleging that the present dispute had nothing to do with fire and rehire. However, Unite have now hit back and say its engineers at Weetabix factories in Kettering and Corby, Northamptonshire, are currently taking strike action for four days a week against company moves to attack their wages, terms and conditions. The union says that it could cost some engineers a loss of wages amounting to £5,000 a year. This is despite the fact that last year, Weetabix turnover grew by 5% to £325 million and profits leapt up by almost 20% to £82 million. Now, sticking with the topic of fire and rehire, the GMB union says that ACAS's fire and rehire advice is worthless to workers who have been sacked. The union is calling on ministers to legislate properly to make the archaic practice of fire and rehire illegal. 
Andy Prendengast, GMB National Secretary, said that whilst the ACAS guidance over fire and rehire may be helpful to some, it will be ignored by bad employers and doesn't change the fact that the government has failed workers by failing to legislate against this insidious practice. And finally, Living Wage Foundation figures released last week show that low pay is endemic in modern Britain. One in six workers are now earning under the real living wage. That's led to TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady saying that every worker should be able to afford a decent standard of living. These new figures from the Living Wage Foundation show that low pay is endemic in modern Britain. Millions are in jobs that don't pay the bills or put food on the table. That's all from me this week, but you can find a full list of our stories on the Radical Roundup on Wednesday. Back to you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed, Razit. I suspect we won't find many, if any, of those stories in the mainstream media over the coming days. And the Living Wage Foundation, by the way, uh, the Living Wage Foundation's assessment of what you need to be paid to really be able to put food on the table and keep a roof over your head and all the rest of it is set at £11.05 for London and £9.90 for the rest of the country at the present time. And that contrasts with the official national minimum wage and national living wage. National living wage is going to go up from £8.91 to £9.50 in in April. And that £9.50 at our rate is payable if you are aged 23 or over. That's just about it for this episode. We're just about out of time, but thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. hope the last half hour or so has given you food for thought, made you think. If you do have comments, points of view, if you've got suggestions for people we should have on the show or subjects we ought to cover in future episodes, then do get in touch. Do get in touch. You can email the show at uniondews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at jewsunion. And if you go on to the podcast platform of your choice... You can subscribe to the show, so you get each episode just as soon as it drops. You can rate us, you can share episodes. And can I just say a cheeky but hopeful thank you in grateful anticipation of all those five-star ratings that are about to come our way. Now, Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network. The Labour Radio Podcast Network is a collection of around 150 trade union and labour radio shows and podcasts and so on. And you can access them through the portal, which is at labourradionetwork.org. And it was the people at the Labour Radio Podcast Network who sourced the Luke Roderick track that we're about to be played out to in just a few moments' time. So it just leaves me to say thank you. Thank you to Bazit. Thank you to Mel. Thank you to Tom. Thank you above all to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time in our company. We've really enjoyed having you along. So until next time on Union Jews, stay safe, stay well, be kind. And I'll see you next time on the Union Jews podcast. Bye for now. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we gotta aid our workday This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la di da Unions fought hard for your right to party they're out there to ease your tension With decent wages, healthcare and pensions Now it's like unions blame for bad weather But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever I wanna shout it on high and get it off my chest The story here is fighting for those who have less So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war Think what they've done, where they stand, who they fight for
The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.